Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Welcome, everyone, to the J3U Podcast. I am your host, John Jewett, and with me is co-host Luke Miller. And today, we're focusing on women health hormones and we have Victoria Falcar, who's done her research in exploring women's health and female hormone manipulation in sports and athletics. I think you're currently working on your, your doctorate. You're still in the, the depths of that, right? <laughs> so never welcome. ending writing. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm I'm doing well. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's it is our pleasure and honor for sure. And this is uh a topic that we've been faced with and have very little resources on. Um, and especially coming up coaching, I, I know the listeners too, you're kind of left with what's been handed down to you, um, of what you've been exposed to with, with coaching females, especially mainly focused on PED using enhanced side of female use. And, 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 this, and, and just so you know, this conversation won't just be if you, for the PED using enhanced female, because we're going to dive into just what's a normal hormone baseline for a female, which is very gonna um, plague even the natural competitor realm. So I think everyone can have a, a takeaway from this, but um, you know, for, for our listeners, you know, we try to serve as an ed- educating role and Victoria, you've kind of leaded the front here, I feel like in uh, for female women's health hormones. Um, I got some of your background. I know that could be like a deep dive on, you know, where you're currently, where where have you been and where you're currently at, but um, just to have a touch. So they kind of listeners have, who is Victoria Falcar? um, Where where are you currently at? Um, So I have been in the industry for a very long time. I actually realized yesterday I've been online coaching for 10 years, which doesn't feel like that at all. I was like, wait a second. I started in 2012. It's 2022. So weird, but, um, I've been in the industry even before that. Um, my background is in kinesiology, sports science, sport med. Um, so I've done my bachelor's, my master's, my PhD, working on finishing up the writing for that, but I've also worked in the industry simultaneously. So while I was doing my education, I was, I was literally in the trenches um, and myself as like this wannabe hardcore pre-2009 when it was cool female athlete just trying to just dig my way in. I connected to uh, the legendary John Meadows in 2009 when I was working through my own health stuff. And I'm so grateful for that because him and uh, Eric Serrano really helped to shepherd my career by saying like, hey there's more than just being a meathead. You're really smart. You got to go with that. But, um, I kept, kept at it. I was an exercise, like certified exercise physiologist. And so really my background is super diverse because I was coming at it as myself, as a female athlete going through endocrine reproductive dysfunction, all of that. At the same time, I was still trying to be a bodybuilder and trying to do it um, with really not a lot of education and resources, especially back then, um, and training clients. So seeing it really hands-on, but then being in exercise physiology classes and pre-med classes and learning about like the evils of, 
of steroid use and being like, but really aren't they that bad? Like, it seems like corticosteroids might be just as bad or contraceptives, which is what messed me up, might be just as bad. So I had a lot of questions. And so really this curiosity all got started really early on in my journey. And I've, I, you know, I got on the train and I just haven't left it to today. That's awesome. Awesome. And I think it's a, it's kind of a never ending deep dive in that area, which it's, it's extremely interesting, um, especially just for, for Luke and I, and we both coach our, our spouses. So it's when you're coaching your spouse, it's like, wow, then you think, you know, something, and then you open up the like can of worms. You're like, I know nothing. What have I been doing? And then it's, then you like to really expand your mind once you have like that, that mindset of like the, the female system is very complicated. And what I see put out and what I have when clients come to me and what's been given, it's, uh, it's fairly shocking. And even the, the lack of like kind of the system approach, like that everything affects another thing. And where the, the current knowledge is, it's like, because uh, Renee was or my wife, she was like, um, if you didn't coach me, who would coach me? And I think, and I think like, hey, who would I trust with a female? And it, yeah. it's, it's rare. You know, it really is a, a rare short list. And for how many people coach females, that is uh, troublesome, <laughs> which I'm, I'm sure yeah. it's the same fr- frustration on your end. So what I wanted to like, uh, sorry. I was going to say, absolutely. Yeah. But there's even <laughs> doctors that I don't trust. Like, that's yeah. the sad thing is, is that there's even people specialized in gynecology, reproductive medicine, endocrinology that I personally in the last five years have walked into a doctor's appointment of mine and turn around and walk out. I'm like, no. So it's not just the fitness industry. It's pervasive. Uh, Whether we're talking about in the research labs, in clinical practice, coaches in the bodybuilding world, or in the elite athlete outside of bodybuilding, um, more of that athletic domain of track and field or um, field sports or whatever. It's, it's the female. It's so funny because we focus so much on the female body, but we still don't know shit about it. <laughs> and we still don't know a lot about the male body either. So I'd always try to make sure that it's not just about like men versus women. The reality is, is we got, we've got a lot that's the same, a lot that's similar, but then there's difference. And the difference isn't just between men and women. It's between women and women. It's between men and men. And that's one of the things that makes coaching or working with individuals or studying them so difficult is that it really is so complex. There's so many different combinations that we can have. And the things that bind like, quote, women together is that menstrual cycle, reproductive, we're able to make babies. That's one thing that you guys can't do yet, at least. Yeah. Don't hold us back, Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's it's interesting. Like, cause I know there's a growing um, increase in female practitioners, doctors, Mm -hmm. and maybe some females might have more reassurance going to a female physician However, they're still getting the same information as like a male physician would be getting in training. So um, there's still misinformation, even though they're, it's their own gender practicing um, amongst females. Um, I think that kind of uh, cues off the conversation of getting to this baseline of when you're, we are assessing females, when we have a client come or for the, for the listeners, if you're, you're a coach, 
a lot of times we're seeing this female after there's been a, a lot of issues been whether it's uh, PED usage they've never had a, a healthy menstrual cycle to begin with and we're in this kind of assessment process and kind of trying to get them back to this healthy baseline before moving into layer in uh, what we need to for their their outcomes and so that's the direction I want to head with you Victoria on trying to see like you know where, where, where's the starting point when you have this type of individual come and so for if a female's listening they can pick up on maybe some cues on like oh wow I don't have normal hormone function that's kind of where I need to get back to and and, and eventually we, I would like to see kind of this framework of what looks like a, a risk reduction model for a female that's using PEDs and I, I've heard lots of different approaches within this um, so I kind of would like to get your, your perspective, but let's start yeah. there. What you have, we have a female coming as a, as a competitor and there's this baseline assessment that needs to be for um, a systems approach. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of entry points in lots of them. It really is pick your poison and, and walk with it. I, from my background. So with my background in sport med, women's health, women's reproductive health, that's my vessel in. So some of the first conversation points that I talk to women about is tell me about your menstrual cycle. Not only is this going to give me information about like, what do they actually know about menstruation, what it means to have a healthy cycle or not, as well as also uh, where do I need to go? And I always kind of start my conversation with that because that's my background. Now, somebody else who say is more focused in neurobiology, they might start somewhere else, but I always, that's my baseline is, okay, tell me about your, your menstrual cycle and your reproductive history. A lot of times we get lost in our industry about like weeks and months, not years. And so when somebody talks about an assessment, they go, okay, well, I've had a bleed and big air quotes for the last year. Isn't that good enough? And I'm like, no, it's not <laughs> because I need to know what was life like before this. I need to know also, when did you have your first cycle? Uh, what was it like? Have you been on any other types of hormonal influencing agents, whether we're talking about hormonal contraceptives or uh, hormonal influencing events? Did you have an eating disorder and lose your cycle? I need to know all of that because the female reproductive cycle is, think of it as a timeline. And that there are certain stops of sorts. And now this is a very generalized statement, but there are certain stops that the female reproductive cycle takes in order for it to be, quote, healthy. Not everybody's timeline is going to look the same. Often they are here, there, and everywhere. But the, the basic premise of this is that we start with puberty. We end with menopause. And menopause is one year after the last bleed. The time before that that's really tumultuous is perimenopause. Um, and with in puberty, those two things, puberty, perimenopause, those are the times of erratic hormones, highs, lows, everything in between, because in puberty, our, our, our um, pathways are trying to get established. And in perimenopause, they've been established, but now our body is taking them away because that's just the reproductive aging timeline. In the middle, there are certain checkpoints we have, such as um, if somebody has um, had a baby, uh, fertility-wise, 
if somebody has had other types of procedures that might influence their ebb and flow of their hormones, if they've competed, if they've, I mean, there's just, that's where we start to add in more of that picture and more of that story or that song. So by looking at it over time, we really can start to build a picture of where we're at with a client when they come to us. It's not just simply about the here and the now or even where they want to be in the future. We really, truly do need to pay attention to the history because that does, in, in my professional opinion, influence how I'm going to work with somebody. If they've never ever had a regular cycle, well, the reality is we need to break it down and tell them what that actually means. And how old are they? Are they 35? If they're 35, we're on the roller coaster to the end. You can't get off that sucker. She's going down. Or are you 22 and never actually possibly had an ovulatory cycle? Because if that's the case, I got to go a completely different direction with you. So age does matter um, hugely. Uh, onset of menses matters hugely. Um, whether or not they even have, I mean, do they have their ovaries? Do they have their uterus? Those are questions too that we do need to ask because hysterectomy rates, will they have gone down? It still is for women after 35, 40, one way that symptoms get managed, whether that's appropriate or not, is a totally different conversation probably for another day. But um, that, that to me is, that's where I start. And I can keep going if you guys want me to, because I can really walk through other types of questions, but just establishing their reproductive timeline where they are at today where they were at in the past and where do they want to go? If somebody wants to conceive a year from now and they're like, I want to run another anniversary cycle. And I'm like, wait a second, let's talk about this. So that all matters. Yeah. I think, I think a place too, for us, a lot of times that we'll see is people with like chronic competing histories and, mm -hmm. and never really having a full understanding of what normal looks like. And then also, not understanding the long-term detriment of consistent cycle disruption. So mm -hmm. the long-term fertility impact within that and, and never really fully returning to full hormonal basis because mm -hmm. when they're pulling panels, they're not, and they're following their menstrual cycle along, they're not looking at the ratios of these hormonal yeah. panels and, and making sure that we're following along the timeline of the cycle. Right. Um, and I think life, the life extensions panel is the, bane of my existence because they're freaking fat loss panel. They don't have FSH and LH and progesterone. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, but that's commonly the, the panel mm. that's touted in bodybuilding. Circles, Ab right? Absolutely. It's, like, it's yeah. like, there's a problem here. And so what, what ends up happening to John and I is like, we're working with clinicians to get these panels pulled or mm -hmm. cherry picking panels and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, and then having to sit down and go over what this should look like from a, a mm -hmm. normal cycle production. So mm -hmm. I think like signs of normal menses would be important Yeah. Um, because I think that it starts to lay the framework for people who yeah. have been disruptive for a very long time. Absolutely. So first and foremost, the bleed is not the grand finale of the menstrual cycle. So menstrual cycle, most of us have been indoctrined into this idea that it's all about the bleed. And a lot of practitioners, doctors, gynecologists, even endocrines will say, when was your last menstrual cycle? Well, the menstrual cycle is the full term of somebody going through the follicular phase, ovulation, or not, depending on the clinical situation, luteal phase, and then the bleed. The bleed is menstruation. The whole encompassing thing is the menstrual cycle. So right away, when doctors say that, I'm like, ah, no, not quite. And semantics do matter. 
that's the other thing too, is that like the people might listening, listening might say like, well, what's the big deal? Well, it does because that's how words, it's almost like the game of telephone. Once upon a time, a study said one thing. And then a couple of years later, somebody else used that same study and they twisted the words. And then now we get to where we are today, uh, which is in a great place to be. And so the menstrual cycle itself, th there's a couple myths that we can bust right away. So number one, it, a normal cycle is not 28 days. A normal cycle has a great degree of variance. It can be 21 days. It could be 36 days. It could be even 40 days. It's relative to the individual. Within that, there's two main like cycle phases. You have the ovarian cycle phase and you have the uterine cycle phase. And each of those can get broken down into two. Now, why is this important? What's and what does this really mean is so the ovarian cycle phase is the ovarian action and function. The uterine is the uterine action and function. The ovaries don't bleed. The uterus does. The endometrium does. So there are two different things happening simultaneously. They work together and hormones influence both of those. So within the, uh, the basic kind of schematic of that normative model, when we look at it, there's the first half of the cycle. If we're going to talk about just the ovarian cycle, it's called the follicular phase. There are certain critical events that have to happen in the follicular phase for the rest of the cycle to progress with these certain kind of like checkpoints that we need in order for us to call it a healthy, regular, ovulatory menstrual cycle. And so in that follicular phase, we need to see the right levels of communication between our brain and our ovaries. And that's happening from two key hormones called FSH or follicular stimulating hormone and LH or luteinizing hormone. And that's really that connection between the brain and the ovaries. And at the site of the ovaries, estrogen has to be created to some extent, to be able to make a communication signal back to the brain so we can always keep this little cycle going. Now, if there's not enough estrogen happening, that's not going to create the communication network that we need. If there's not enough brain um, kind of communication with FSH and LH, we're not going to get, we're going to have this kind of twisted cycle that's not even working right from the get-go. So from there, we can go to now bunch of things have happened, feedback loops. We signal an increase in luteinizing hormone that um, causes this beautiful process called ovulation to occur. And ovulation is not just about conception. So a lot of women that come to me, they may have had fertility issues. So they know about ovulation because they got exposed to that through their fertility journeys. The reality is, is that ovulation is how the human female body creates progesterone. Most of our progesterone, we create a little bit through other sources, but most of our progesterone gets created through ovulation. If we do not ovulate, we do not make progesterone. That is critical to know and to remember that little tidbit for what I'm going to talk to in a little bit. But ovulation, it occurs around that mid-cycle. Um, essentially, long or the short is, is it's a release of an egg from the ovary into the fallopian tube. If you have the right environment, AKA that gets fertilized during that time, baby is made. If it doesn't, it goes through like another choose your own adventure pathway. And that's what most of us are having on a monthly basis if we are ovulating. 
when progesterone is made through this process, it creates a, its own environment of hormones for the second half. And that's called the luteal phase. So in that mm, average healthy ovulatory cycle, estrogen is going to be the highest in the first half of the cycle. And progesterone is going to be higher than estrogen in the second half, but we're still making some estrogen. Now, both of these hormones, they come to a halting, lovely decline. And that decline or that withdrawal is how we have a menstrual bleed. So that bleeding process is actually when our hormones are going to be at the lowest. Everything is at the lowest. So when women get their labs done, say on day two, it's not really going to tell me a whole hell of a lot. It's going to tell me if you've got some hormones getting produced. Great. Cool. But is that really going to give me the valuable data that I need? No. Um, other things to kind of put into this mix is that androgens. So testosterone, androstenedione, dione, DHEA, they're getting created throughout this at varying degrees. Cortisol also gets shifted. Our neurotransmitters or our little brain food, which isn't just our brain, we know it does a lot more than that now, they're getting created in different amounts because it's the neuroendocrine system. Even though our ovaries are making estradiol and progesterone as their main two, those have effects elsewhere in the body and elsewhere in the body has effects on those. Not having an ovulatory cycle means that you still can create estradiol, but you don't get that lovely middle ovulatory process of, to happen. You can still have a bleed. So you could literally as a woman have a, let's say 32 day cycle and have an ovulatory cycle and have an 32 liters have an anovulatory cycle. You only will know if you track and you pay for the right, pay attention to the right signs. Um, and that's where menstrual cycle tracking is such a valuable thing for competitors to do, even if they're using gear. It is so valuable because gear and androgens don't mean complete arrest of this system. It really depends on a bunch of different factors, which I'm sure we're going to get into that. So I don't want to get too far out of my, my brain bubble here, but tracking can be really, really important. Progesterone is badass. I mean, it is a very cool hormone. It is super important for our thyroid health. It's super important for our bones. It's super important for our brains. I mean, we get the neurotransmitter GABA getting produced in a big way when we ovulate. And that GABA, for those people that might not be exposed to what that is, it's like a neurotransmitter that's like a blanket for our nervous system. It really helps to protect and preserve and help our bodies through times of stress, which when we think about competition prep, I mean, it is, it is when we need progesterone because it's also thermogenic. It raises our basal metabolic temperature, which is how we can track for if we make it or not by tracking our basal metabolic temperature in the morning with just a basic thermometer. So there's ways that we can work through to, to kind of be able to track and tell if we have this normal average. I don't even want to say average. I'm going to just call it a healthy ovulatory menstrual cycle. Now, the reason why I'm kind of hesitant to say average is that the reality is, is that we don't know how many women have this every month 
because we just, I mean, big data is not there yet. And we really weren't paying attention to this, even though it's been known since the thirties that ovulation happens and it's really important and we should ask women about it. Um, ovulation is something that you do see in lower levels or ovulatory disruptions in female athletes. Um, one of the things that I've been exposed to a lot within my research is that we often have this very polarizing, especially in sport medicine or exercise science, polarizing idea about women's reproductive health. It's either they have a menses or a bleed or they don't. And if they don't, they have amenorrhea. And amenorrhea by definition is no menstrual bleed for three months. Everything else has been just completely forgotten. Like any other type of reproductive disorder has just been a, a blind eye has been turned to it because women, what might, they might not realize is that it's a spectrum. It's not just about bleed, no bleed. There's a bunch of different things and different um, variations that can happen. Women can have a shortened luteal phase. So even if we have that 32 day example, you can have a 32 day cycle, but your luteal phase may only be eight days. Well, eight days, you're not going to make enough progesterone for long enough to actually balance the estradiol and keep things in a healthy um, balance of the two. It's yin and yang. It's not going to happen. You could have a, let's say 32, so 16 day luteal phase, but maybe you're not making enough. So you can have a progesterone deficiency. You can have a shortened luteal phase length. You can have a, uh, like what would be more of a PM. SPMDD, where you are making progesterone in the right levels, but the brain itself just does not react the same. And this, a lot of times they've realized can be due to the brains, um, kind of the way that it, the receptors for GABA work. So it's not even about the progesterone, it's about GABA because some brain stuff that's happening there. So that's another kind of reproductive disorder itself too. Now you can also have low levels of hormones and have a, a menstrual cycle, even with a bleed or with ovulation, but it might not, might be just scraping by. And unless you track, you, you don't start to pick up the symptoms that can occur that can people like us can start to kind of walk people through and figure that out. So I know that was a lot, um, but maybe that gave us a base to work from. I think so. And and speaking of tracking, I'm sure we're you're following clients along. You're I, I'm assuming this is what you brought up. You track mm -hmm. temp, um, yeah. And then you which do you? Because I hear lots of people will pull labs day 21 to see if there was um, ovulation occur. However, yeah. with this variation amongst yeah. the cycles, that might you might miss it. Yeah. Um, you might yeah. So. What, what is your suggestion on, or do you try to map it out with like a Dutch yeah. test over so many times? No, no, I recommend. So if you're somebody that you don't have a bleed, we just do it whenever we can. Like literally we, we, we figure, we get a baseline. If you're somebody who has cyclical symptoms, which you only know this, if you track, if you have some degree of cyclical symptoms, but you don't have a bleed, then I will use your symptoms to try to figure out what's going on. So again, going back to the idea that it's a continuum is that women, it's not like you guys go from, and myself included, not bleeding to bleeding in one month. There is this great variation that's happening. You might be creating some gonadotropins and they might even get, be getting them to go up a little bit 
and stay up for a couple of days and then drop. But until you track symptoms, you don't know that. And that's actually some data we can use to be able to do labs. Um, if you're somebody who has an irregular cycle, symptom tracking could be super useful because we can use your data to try to figure out, okay, well, you start to get um, insomnia, water retention, sore lumpy breasts around the 14th of, you just had it, I'll say on the 14th of the month. Okay, well, we know that a couple months ago when this happened, your bleed was about 12 days later. So we want to try to get those labs done about 12 days after that, even if there was say 62 days between the beginning of lumpy breasts, right? Like, so we can use that data when somebody has more of a regular bleed, we still need to track it. The reason is, is that the basal temp gives you your cue. When you run a proper kind of progesterone test, you do it five to seven days after somebody ovulates, but five to seven days before they bleed. So that's kind of your litmus. That's where we go. That might not be day 21 for everybody. So if you can get three months of data, that will give you the best baseline possible to figure out when to get your labs done. Okay. Now, I think that gives some helpful takeaway for, for people listening. And I, I like to like, because people are going to miss, and I, I have a lot of clients too that just completely disconnect mm -hmm. that, you know, the menstrual cycle is, is for reproduction and they don't see it as the benefit for, for one overall health uh, in the long term, but also even affect management within using PDs and progress. Yeah, um, so for sure. Estrogen, yeah. progesterone, testosterone, all these ebb and flow that happen throughout the month. Mm. And there's a, a benefit to trying to somewhat optimize these or get back to. A, a oh, for day. sure. Um, if, if you could speak on that, because I, I don't mm. want people to leave like, okay, I don't, I don't care about having a menstrual yeah. cycle. I don't want a baby. I have people yeah. this, like, it doesn't matter. It's like, no, no, you don't understand. Like this will help yeah. with side effect or yeah. management when you're yeah. using these. Um, and then I think we probably need to touch on, it's not just the androgens that are the impactful here, but there's probably this underlaying that I see a lot of, of like yeah. insulin resistance, inflammation, and this is yeah. driving hormone dysfunction. And it's kind of compounded on top of androgens putting placed in. Or is it, is it the chicken and the egg? Like even more than that. And this is <laughs> um, yeah. So, but okay. I know that I throw a lot at you, but yeah, um, no. if you touch on like why it's, why it's beneficial for yeah. an enhanced female to have uh, progesterone yeah. estrogen and testosterone in these right ratios. Yeah, absolutely. So great in a great segue. So it's not just about levels. So number one, I think when we think about labs and this is one reason that lab analysis is a, it is an art and it is a science and it's a hell of a lot more complicated than going on Google and looking up what like high MCV means. There are these ways in which we analyze labs that look at the ratios of certain, not only single values, let's say progesterone and estradiol, but also within a network of other communicators as well as within the grandiose system. And then there's also in the individual, we know that when we run labs, we're not able to look at how is their receptor. Some individuals have really hypersensitive receptors. Some individuals don't. 
Some individuals can respond acutely to even low levels of hormones and those low levels of hormones are enough and that's their baseline. But you don't know that until you get into the proper analysis and everything else. Not only that is that there are other variables that will cause certain hormones to be higher or, or lower. So that's kind of number one is that we have to always remember that there's a lot that goes into this, a lot that goes into proper analysis, particularly in women when we are chasing a moving target when it comes to doing lab work and identifying it. And things like Dutch testing, to be honest, I use them very rarely because if you do labs properly, you get enough data and you save your client that five, $700. There are extreme cases I use them, but I would say that I gravitate towards the serum done in the right setting at the right time. And there's other ways that we can optimize doing serum testing for that specific individual. Um, sometimes it does mean getting say estradiol, LH and FSSH done every Wednesday for five weeks to actually see what is going on with their curve and then laying that on top of symptoms. And that is for women why symptom tracking is so important. It's not just about the bleed. In order for me to be able to help somebody, I need to know what their discharge is. I need to know what their digestion's doing. I need to know what migraines or insomnia or breast pain or nipple soreness. I need to know all of that. And there's other ones more that are signs of, or relation there, there's a relationship of them to hormonal levels and hormonal milieus. And then we overlay that on top of labs to be able to actually get a proper, more accurate understanding of what's going on. So that's number one. Number two is sex hormones is a name that should have been forgotten in the 1930s and that wasn't unfortunately. So when we think about estrogen, progesterone, they often get associated with the female hormone or the ovarian hormones, and then testosterone is the male. So that's bogus. Hopefully by now we all can agree with that, that sex hormones do so much more than male, female, reproductive only. So estrogen and progesterone do innumerable things in the body, like progesterone. I mentioned already, I mean, massive impact for our brain health, for our, for, I mean, for sleep, for stress management and just overall stress control for making sure that our bones and women, like your bones matter now. If you do not make your bone density in your twenties and thirties and early forties, she gone after that because estrogen helps to build progesterone helps to preserve and yes, physical activity and diet play a role, but hormones we've now discovered are so incredibly important. Autoimmunity, having the proper ratios of estrogen and progesterone are so important for our nervous system, even for how our nerves are myelinated or protected, the surrounding coating for pain disorders. Why do women get diagnosed with fibromyalgia at higher rates? Why do women get diagnosed with lupus at higher rates? Why do women get diagnosed with osteoporosis at higher rates? Why do women get diagnosed with heart attacks, but not until they're almost dead? Why do women have Alzheimer's? I can keep going. Hormones matter for so much more. And I wish I could like scream that from the rooftop right now, because it's in your twenties, thirties, and early forties that you have an opportunity to set your body in motion to have the healthiest future possible. Things with estrogen that a lot of times people don't realize is that once you've gone through menopause at one year after your last period, your ovarian reserve is emptied and done. You can't just start HRT and expect to get benefits. 
that ship has sailed. She's like, she's gone. You can have some benefit, but if we're talking for brain health, no, yeah, that's scary. You know, and that's it, that's really scary for women to realize. And I think because there's been like some people are promoting like, hey, the risk in male PD users is mm-hmm. moving into is like cardiovascular disease, brain, yeah. kidney, yeah. and for females, it's just yeah. virilization, amenorrhea. But they don't talk about brain as much or heart or kidneys yeah. in certain certain segments. Yeah. But I, I think you pose the same yeah. risk in PED usage with females mm-hmm. and hormone disruption that you mm-hmm. do with with males and mm-hmm. as as uh, segmented in, in, yeah. in talking. So like these are some acute, I think, issues yeah. you face in females, but the long-term ones mm-hmm. are still uh, highly concerning. Yeah. So having this you know, hormone ratios that where they need mm-hmm. to be or optimize is so important for yeah. long, long-term outcomes. Absolutely. And it's not just about androgen use. It's about contraceptives, hormonal contraceptives. It's about use of corticosteroids or just living a stressful life, being a competitor and not having this proper ebb and flow. It takes a lot for our bodies to do what they do every single day. And part of aging, like aging at its core is our cells are getting tired. They are getting slow. They are reducing in function. And there's only so much that we can throw at them to expect them to regain some of that. I've worked with individuals in the past. They're like, oh, I'll just go on HRT when I'm older. And I'm like, it doesn't quite work like that. Like your whole body is changing. It's slowing down. Like we need to actually address it as it's happening. Um, and, And I think a big thing too, is that for women, and this was myself included back in my like late teens. I was like, I don't want to have kids. Sure. But the body still needs to be able to be health. Like that, that's a sign of health. Ovulation. That's a regular occurrence is a sign of all cause health. It means you're getting enough nutrients. You're getting enough sleep. You're not overstressed. You're nourished. Your thyroid's working. Your nutrients are all where they need to be. It's an all cause sign of health. So I might not need to ovulate because of conception reasons, I still need to ovulate. And if I don't, I need to ask the questions of why. It's important for us to not, I think, over emphasize or essentialize these things because the reality is not all bodies can ovulate safely. Not all women are going to ovulate. And and that in order for them to do it, it's going to probably take a little bit more whether we're talking about drugs or even different types of surgeries or whatever it might be, there is a lot that goes into it. And so we always have to go back to that individual, but at the end of the day, hormones are important. They do so much more than just make babies and menstrual bleeds. Um, And that when we think of side effects associated with androgen use, a big thing that the industry has gotten wrong, massive thing. It's about ratios and it's about the individual. Some people have, like I said, hypersensitive receptors to things like androgens. This has been shown with hair follicles in particular, that some individuals have hair follicles that are just like so toasty and ready to go with even the minutia little bit of androgens we have in, I say, an ovulatory menstrual cycle. And then you add a synthetic androgen in the mix. Well, there there, there's your go there. You're good. It's, I mean, it's there. Um, 
or for some women, I mean, this was myself. It's like, I come from a hairy stock of human, like even without androgens, they're there. So what do you think is going to happen if you introduce androgens in the mix? They're going to increase, whether we're talking about higher levels of endogenous or exogenous, that's going to increase there. It's already there. It's established. Um, with voice changes, a lot of times it's ratios that we think about. When you think about the epitome of the female pre-contest individual, her estrogen is tanked, whether it's intentionally through the use of anti-estrogens or it's through just being in an amenorrheic state um, or a, a hypohormone, hypogonadic state. Her progesterone is tanked. And now androgens are in super physiological, steady state dosing. Well, we've just talked about that the hormone body for women is highs and lows and everything in between. So you've got a steady, continuous state of hypohormonal, of estrogen and progesterone, progesterone, pardon me, and a high level or super physiological steady state of androgens. And you're cruising along. Well, androgens cause a hell of a... Uh, shitstorm in the female body when they're unopposed to estrogen that's so, when you get into huge issues okay so sorry to interrupt but this yeah. is kind of like maybe a, a launch point for the next discussion of maybe like what is considered usage and where should we go because like yeah. i know for myself a lot of my like pre-contest specific example mm -hmm. i've got things in place along the way and managing some of the symptomology understanding mm -hmm. and communicating with the client that we're probably going to have to do something to combat HPA adaptation. So yeah. we hopefully have a clinic involved. We've already lined up if yeah. HPA adaptation occurs, yeah. we've addressed this with HRT practices and things along mm -hmm. these lines. And I think finding a, and, and John, you can jump in if you think differently, but I'm pretty sure you're along the same finding a hormonal baseline that allows someone to be productive is probably the best place we can be before we even consider super physiological and I think that is more of a launch point of PD usage rather than just going super physiological. And I think that maybe as we start to stream into the discussion of where should we go with PED usage, um, we can obviously discuss compounds, but we need to talk about like the implementation of these different phases in order to mm -hmm. be able to get the client there. Um, and I think, John, just to let you comment, like that's kind of where we my thought process would begin, mm -hmm. especially with like my clientele. Yeah, like, <clears throat> because we, and right, because I look at these labs that I get, just like you're saying, Victoria, if you mm -hmm. show me the labs without knowing who they came from, I would say this is a male hormone panel. It's yeah. low estrogen, if it's progesterone, and then you have this high mm -hmm. level of testosterone that's off the charts. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, this, this is a male. Then it's like, oh no, this was a female. Like really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think um, trying to establish keeping these hormones in range, and, and that's a challenge because you are entering, it's even like prep, but it doesn't even have to be prep. It could just be yeah. um, this, this, the yeah. overall system stress driving yeah. down um, ovarian function. So I mean, we know that body image dissatisfaction induces anovulatory cycles not even dieting, not even training, body image dissatisfaction. So if you wanna talk about how to like make some resilience, therapy, proper coping skills, trauma healing. Like 
I think we in our industry have gone, I mean, our industry is about optimization. It's been, and, and that's been from day one. I mean, that's where testosterone developed from was how do we feel better without often having our shit together and our bases together. So for me, whether we're talking about how do I, how do I age the best I can? How do I compete the best I can? How do I get off the, you know, a long-term contraceptive use? How do I use gear safely? My answer is always the same. Get your foundations in place. If your fundamental basics of good health are there, we can throw things into the mix that might not be great long-term, but we can do it safer than if we don't. Like, it's like, don't get into a car on a busy highway, like LA freeway without a seatbelt on, blindfolded, going, I don't know, God knows, tapping out to as fast as it can go. But that's what we're seeing competitors do is they are trying to go all in without having the fundamentals there. And the fundamentals, sleep, sleep numero uno. We can optimize our hormones if we sleep, like, Great, beautiful. Most people aren't willing to do that first though. We can help our hormonal, like in our, just our hormonal milieu, whether you're a woman that you're coming, you've been using gear uh, on and off for years or you've never used it at all. I mean, sleep, happiness and just overall well-being and moods and trauma healing massive. You want to see some great androgen studies? Look at PTSD. Their DHEA is chronically elevated and it messes them up like a pre-contest female. Um, we can think about things such as nutrition. Are you eating enough? Because I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on actually podcast with my partner and some of his colleagues. And, and I said like, you know, you can be in a caloric deficit and give somebody nutrient dense food and serve their body a lot more than not giving them nutrients dense food in a caloric deficit. At least we're giving them something. We might not be giving them what they need calorically, but we can give them nutrient dense foods and get a little bit further along from a, a health standpoint. Now, not everybody, obviously, this is where supplementation comes in, but nutrition. Are we, are we digesting our food properly? Are we pooping every day? Like these are the fundamental basics of good health, like vitamin D. I can't tell you how many athletes come to me with vitamin D in this shit. And they're like, but I train in this outdoors and I'm like, ain't going to cut it. And vitamin D from a reproductive standpoint, this is vital to how we are able to ovulate. I mean, melatonin, which we get when we sleep, is vital for how we are able to ovulate. And that everything has a time and a place in terms of like adding in supplements and everything else. But we want to try to establish what we can with the least amount of added in variables. And for some women, there might be a lot more involved with that. For other women, it might just come you know, naturally to them. And that's cool too. So I think another thing too, that often gets forgotten in the PED conversation with women is that I've been doing this a long time. So I've been coaching like in the industry for 15 years. I've been, as I said, online coaching for 10. I work with the biggest names in the industry behind the closed doors. 
women that have it, they have it. What I mean by that is that the women you see in the top five, 10, or even just on the Olympia stage, or even the top five at nationals, because some of those girls now are insane. They're there for often a reason. And that's either, I mean, drugs aside, they were willing to push it, or maybe they weren't, but their bodies can handle the prep stress, drugs, training, nutrition, better. Maybe not long-term, but there's something there that they have that some of us just don't. And that's the sad reality of being an athlete. I am not going to go and line up at a sprinting block and expect me to, to crush it. Biomechanically, I don't have it. Energetically, I don't have it. Stress-wise, my body can't just handle stress cellularly. I'm not even getting into hormones. There are certain factors that make hormone production, metabolism, um, transformation better. And there are genetic things involved. And I think we oversimplify it, especially when coaches go and they start looking at like steroid genesis or how we make our steroids. And they're like, it's really simple. We go from DHEA, DHEA into testosterone, testosterone into estradiol. Some people aromatize. But it's like, no, 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 guys, like you make hormones beyond just our endocrine glands. You have autocrine, intracrine, paracrine, and I could go on. You have people that will have the traditional serogenesis in certain systems, but it looks different in different systems of the body. Even the adrenals have different creation in different regions. You also have uh, people that have altered whether that's epigenetic changes that have been made and or induced through drug or that are just them, certain enzymes. There are lots of women that have backdoor androgen production, which means that they hyper create androstenedione, which doesn't make for fun. No matter who you are, that's not going to be a fun thing. So I think that we dilute and we oversimplify and that's why people get hurt. It's not it's not meant to be a playful, fun thing. It is serious, serious stuff that we just have not taken with that much degree of seriousness, especially for women. Because I, I mean, guys, like, do you know how hard it is to tell somebody that they're never going to have kids because of the mistakes that they made and that a coach got them to follow? Like that, that's, it's, it's awful. It is gut-wrenching to have to do that. That even IVF, isn't going to do it for them. That's, that's, that's devastating. And, and it's, it's a responsibility as a coach that you need to put that because 20 year old version of yourself may like, ah, no big deal. But later on, like that individual might really want that once competing's done and it only lasted for a couple of mm-hmm. years. And then that was in your hands of giving those protocols to that individual that now looks back and has resentment towards you. So it's whether your clients like whatever they say now, like it's still like you have to think really long term for people mm-hmm. that can't can't think that out as well. Yeah, Victoria, I didn't want to yeah. shift on because we we come to this point of managing all these variables and job mm-hmm. to optimize you know sleep, the nutrition aspect, yeah. stress, and the psychological component to bring about the best health that you can for the individual and hormone balance. And at some point, like within going, say like into a contest prep situation, Mm -hmm. you're you're exposing yourself to this, this stress load where you might see this down 
um, mm-hmm. you know, regulation in estrogen, mm-hmm. progesterone, and, and knowing that these ratios with androgens mm-hmm. can be beneficial. Um, mm-hmm. What what do you what would you say would be a safeguard in place or things to have in place as uh, like whether it's uh, bioidentical hormones or mm-hmm. um, either in other nutraceuticals or pharmaceuticals yeah. that should be in place to manage the inflammation or insulin resistance that might be occurring mm-hmm. from just this offset of androgens to, to estrogens and progesterone. Um, where, where can that kind of framework lead uh, for yeah. the protective roles before even talking about like what, what PDs are you using? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that a lot can be done through managing. So when I look at drugs, I look at, I mean, only people could see what I see in my brain, but I look at what is that drug doing um, the most basic pathways that taking. So when you take a drug or even just prep, let's say prep, what is the most basic thing? What's the goal that we're having? Okay, fat loss, muscle gain. And then I go, okay, what's required for that? And then I start breaking it down. Okay, what are influencing variables that are going to take away from that? So I start looking at all these different things and then going, okay, what can I do as an individual? What can I help put in the mix? A lot of times it's basic micronutrients. So whether they're getting this from their food or they're taking a proper supplemental form of the right type for them, which even that's a lot more complicated than just pulling something off the shelf. But we know that just the Western diet And a lot of us that have been raised in this high stressed Western world, we just have these underlying nutrient deficiencies that are always there. And they're not going to get better once we start adding up more physiological stress from training and lack of nutrient foods or just lack of foods in total. So I think that's number one is, you know, really working on these nutrient um, deficiencies, because then when you start adding drugs into the mix, we know that it takes a lot to metabolize a drug. And that for that drug to get metabolized, it's pulling even more away. Um, in, if you're on drugs like birth control, like when you manage the use of an oral contraceptive pill, a lot of what's involved is reintroducing a lot of these depleted nutrients that just get pulled over the course of being on that drug. And that helps to put the body in a better place. When we think about what I said about like reproductive aging, one of those main processes involved is something called methylation and methylation DNA methylation is what you see happening in individuals that have, um, whether we're talking about, uh, issues with hormonal breast cancers, or we're talking about issues with, um, brain estrogen induced brain aging. So when they just withdraw estrogen too fast and they induce something like Alzheimer's or dementia, DNA methylation. So if we look at something like that, it's just a very single acute example. Well, we've got B vitamins in the right ratios. We've got cofactors in the right ratios and the right amounts. We have to look upstream and downstream of that as well. So that's just one example of kind of how complicated this can get. But side note, back in the 1930s, when Japan was kicking the asses world on the Olympic stage, what were they giving their athletes? B vitamins. <laughs> We've known this. Neurological issues often stem from B vitamin deficiencies, B12, B9, B6, B3, B2. But 
that is at the crux. We got to make sure we're protecting just our basic human, what our body needs just to basically function. Um, other things, safeguards that I put in for gear use that, uh, I mean, I teach this stuff for a living, so nothing secret anymore, but like if somebody is going into prep, I'm, I'm like, I got to get you guys to have at least, at least four ovulatory cycles before I feel safe. If that's not in your cards, which for not like, I don't, I don't ovulate. It's not a mystery for most people anymore. Cause I'm so open about my own health issues, but like, that's just, my body just has never done it. So I have to go to hormonal replacement pathways to go through that properly. But even that's a lot more finicky and specific. And it's not something we should dabble in unless we actually know what we're doing. It's don't just go to your whole foods and pick up a tube of progesterone cream. Cause that's not actually going to do the same thing as the progesterone our body makes different forms of hormone replacement do different things whether we're talking about oral topical suppository uh, vaginal cream vaginal pill patch pellet they do different things it might seem simple but it's not it's very very complicated so with you know, putting the foundations in place. That's a great thing that I try to do is just to stabilize their reproductive. If somebody already has, let's say cystic ovaries, we talk and I go, okay, this is not going to get better through prep or through using certain things to get to your goal. We're not going to get better. Like end of day. If it happens, great. And I want to use you in my next research, like cool. But realistically, that's not going to happen. So knowing that I walk somebody through, John and Luke, the risks. I go, these are our risks that we know. These are our unknown risks. I'm laying it out. It's now in your hands. If you want to proceed, that's fine. That's on you. But this is what it's going to take. It's going to take a hell of a lot of supplementation. You're going to have to micromanage everything. We're going to have to monitor variables. You're going to be spending a ton of money on getting your labs done, proper imaging along the way, because that's the only way that I can conceive this actually being done safely. And it's going to take you a long time to get it off and do one show a year. That's a, that's a tough conversation and not what I think most people would expect to even have. No, no, because sometimes you have to take people there, right? Sometimes like I get put, even in myself, I get put in situations with some of the elite individuals I work with. I go, okay, I have to take them there. And sometimes I have that conversation to myself of like, okay, they're asking for one path. Let's just say, again, hypothetical situation here. Somebody comes to me and they're like a pro IFB or no, let's say, yeah, pro IFBB athlete. And they're like, okay, I want to compete in the Olympia. It's 12 weeks away. Um, I know, I'm a mess. I don't even know when my last cycle was. And I go, okay, like, why do you have, okay, number one, why do you have to compete at this Olympia? Can you qualify again? Or was it just fluke? And, you know, or do you want to be, want to retire after this? So let's talk about the timeline. Number two, let's talk about, what is realistic to do? Can I take them somewhere close without using androgens? Depending on the individual, believe it or not, you can, especially if they've used them in the past. You can get people close 
where it's not like you're introducing all of a sudden this like 12 week cycle of just gear. If you have their base together, and this is kind of what I was saying about some people just have it. I have worked with pro athletes that have maintained ovulation the entire way through an Olympia prep. These are the people that have it. The rest of us don't. That's what I mean by that. That is a rarity to be having an ovulatory cycle. But even in the Olympic realm of athletes, you see ovulation. And I mean, in, in health, ovulation is a sign of resilience. It means that their body is resilient physiologically to stress. And it also helps to buffer them. So it's like a win-win. Now, that's not a lot of women, unfortunately. I'd say that's, that's my rare few. So the women that don't ovulate throughout prep, okay, do we introduce something like a bioidentical, bioavailable micronized progesterone as per needed, knowing that we still have to keep estradiol in balance? Because if you give somebody too much progesterone and they don't make enough estradiol, that's nasty too. So for women listening to this, this is not something you just go to your doctor or your coach to do. Like you're monitoring, you're measuring, like this is science. This is, this is delicate, finicky work because it can make your physique either be awesome or shit. Like there's, there, or you feel like shit. Like it's just, it's such a delicate dance you have to do. And it's just so individual to everybody. Like I just, I wish I could give an easy answer, but there's just not one. It's it's so complex, which is tough for like people to want to like just Victoria, just give us the answer what you take. It's like you just can't do it. That's why I ran away from social media for like a year and a half. Like literally took a sabbatical because I was like, I done, I can't. Let me go back into my cave for a year and a half. Yeah, Instagram's made like, hey, you just get your answer and you move on to the next thing, right? It's like infographics give me nightmares, John. <laughs> infographics. They, they used to, it's not it's not stuff that you can just have the the quick answer to, um, with inter individual response, intra individual response. It's, Absolutely, it's, yeah. It's complex. Um, how how do you feel um, on like within before people just jump to an androgen. So you have these yeah. girls that you're, that, whether on prep or off season, mm -hmm. there's lots of non-androgenic routes to go mm -hmm. female. Do you explore those paths mm -hmm. first or at the same time um, prior to ever even moving into like a, an androgen? Mm -hmm. uh, it's talking growth hormone, insulin, yeah. any, any of these other, other aspects that yeah. might be avenues for females. Yeah, again, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, either have it or you don't. Like, it's one of those things where I got to see what I can build naturally and on your own. And by naturally, naturally for me does not mean nothing. Naturally means like, let me put you in the healthiest state possible and see what we can do. Often, I think people get surprised. Like I've had women come to me that are like, I'm a hard gainer. I'm a hard loser. And it's like, no, you're that when you're not healthy. But if we have a regular ovulatory cycle, your thyroid is functioning properly, your nutrient nourished, you don't have any deficiencies, all of our health issues are managed. Let's get to work for three months and see what you can do. And often people are like shocked, like they're shocked because they labeled themselves as one thing based off of the information they had. And that was reflective of the state that they had been in 
for years, sometimes even decades and didn't realize it. So I think first you've got to get yourself a baseline before you can make any true decisions about what you are, you aren't, you can't do on without drugs. All too often people turn to androgens as the end all be all. I have to have this. And it's like, I have to laugh because it's like, so you've never used creatine, but you've used trend. Like, let me get this clear. Like, hold on here. So the most basic bodybuilding supplements and even health supplements for that matter, you've never used, but you pulled an ACE card you shouldn't have even pulled in the first place. Like, uh, what? Right. And so let's work with the basics. Like time, time is the best thing you can have. I think people are always in a hurry, in a hurry, in a hurry. There's enough Instagram models out there that we don't need another one. Get yourself healthy. Like you are as an athlete, you are, you are completely disposable. And maybe that's tough to hear, but it's the truth. Like I look at the athletes I grew up with and when I was, you know, in really involved and it's, they're, they're still around, but they're not competing. And those that are still in shape are because they are the mutants of society. Like it's, it's the sad reality of our industry we're in. And I, I know that for some people, they might think that I'm not giving any information, but I really am. I really am. And I know for some of you guys that are probably listening, you still want to do it anyways. That's fine too. That's your choice. As long as you know the risks and you're okay with them. Um, it, well, I think they're in this, in the whole, in a lot of people that I get, it's, they want a pro card or the show in like yesterday. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it used to, I think a better understanding of, of, of how long game this is mm-hmm. to really be at your best. And that's what yeah. I talk about even with, with males or females, you know, to yeah. be good at physique sport. Like you need to be in this for the long haul. And this is like 10 yeah. years down the road, where are you? And so you don't yeah. need all your progress in year one like pace yeah. this out. Cause that's where you get really, really good at it. So, oh, and that's where the good muscle comes. <laughs> it comes with time and effort in the gym and consistency and health. Like it, and even if you take a year off or you get sick, it's still there. That's where good muscle comes in. Cause it will come back. You've, it's like, you've, you've, literally earned it and it, it will be there. Like I have to laugh because I trained for de- like oh, from 15 years. I, I'm from Canada, gyms, COVID shit, training in my garage with nothing. And I like look in the mirror and I'm like, how after not leg pressing for a year and a half or doing anything more than 25 aside, do I still have legs? Like I do. I'm like, Thank goodness for all that work I put in. It's still there. And then I get to my part, my, my fiance's in the States and I do a leg press and I'm like, oh my God, like I have hamstrings after like two sessions. Cool. They're back. Like that's what time does for us. It, it creates this resilience, just like that same resilience that being healthy does when we do decide to dabble in certain things. Like I, I think we talk about competing a lot, but ovarian or health resilience we can put into so many different situations too it could be competing it could be um going through a really stressful life event it could be um i mean crap could be doing your phd 
talk about health issues like <laughs> they come with that shit too um it could be having to go on a certain drug or, or go through some type of illness or something like that so health resilience or ovarian resilience it, it is this ability to maintain this ebb and flow without requiring any massive manipulations to get ourselves there that is at the crux to me that's what we should all be trying to achieve because if we are healthy going into prep it's a lot easier to get it after prep. If we go healthy into gear use, it's a lot easier to get it after. And this isn't for everybody, but for the vast majority of people, or it's that recognition that like you weren't healthy to begin with, you ain't going to be healthy coming out. It's going to take a lot of time, work and effort to get yourself there. And that your best as a physique athlete will come when you get healthy and you can put the time in, in the gym as a healthy athlete and then get lean. And that could be two years, three years, five years, who knows, but that's when you are going to be the best you can be because prep isn't going to be so much easier. Maintaining a lean body composition, so much easier, like start prep when you're in striking distance. And if you're not in striking distance, you're not starting prep and you're not starting drugs. Like bottom line for me as a, as a somebody, I don't coach competitors anymore for, for actual like prep. I'm the fixer now and I'm, you know, a health manager now, but that always makes for the healthiest, the safest ride, no matter what we're talking about. And if there are certain things that are preventing you from getting there, we have to go what, and what can we do to help it? Or if we know that something could potentially happen, you're a female, you lose your cycle and every time you compete, like you just no ovulation, no bleed. Okay. Why is it because you didn't, you were on the pill from the age of 14 to 24 and you really haven't established a proper ovulatory healthy menstrual cycle. Like it's just, it has not been established. Well, let's establish that. And then let's see if you lose your period. Every prep might look different might look the same, but we know that the benefits of getting it and having it is a lot better than not. And we did, we did a podcast with Lauren Conlon on mm -hmm. post-show eating. Yeah. She said, Lauren's a good friend of mine, by the way. So oh, good. Um, yeah. She, uh, she was saying, yeah, post-show eating, like the best management, it starts before you even started prep and establishing like yeah. Healthy eating from from before you even enter into it, and yeah. the same thing goes with a well for hormone function. Is yeah. what, what we're getting at here is that this this establishing this healthy baseline starting point is what's going to determine your yeah. prep, your post show, into your off season, and and absolutely, and all, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, the the problem with being a coach is you had someone that comes, hey, I'm coaching, ready to prep. Yeah. Like, hey, no, it's going to be six months, and then maybe you'll prep. And yeah. some people will move on, and they they don't want to hear that, and they're going to prep with someone else. But at yeah. least you've done your responsibility in trying to restore someone to a yeah. healthy spot and see out the long term for them. Like we're saying, yeah, this might yeah. not be. Hey, I need a prep, and why do you need to prep in in these sixteen weeks? Couldn't we do yeah. it in next year? Like, is that yeah. so, big picture? Is that okay? Yeah, for sure. And I think one thing I didn't touch on that um, you guys had asked me and I don't want to neglect it is like just the, the, what, what is okay when it comes to androgen use or what is okay when it comes to kind of this other PED use. 
I don't have the answers for that. Like there was special, I talked about this a couple of years ago at a big event and I was very passionate about it when I said like, when I came into the sport back in like 2005, six-ish, there was like, these are the drugs that are safe for women. These are the drugs that women don't touch. Like it was this cute little list um, on all the forms. It was like adorable. Now looking back on it, because the reality is, is there's nothing like there's Anovar. People are like, it's the women's drug. Women can use it safely. It's like hogwash. No, they can't. Are you kidding me? Now, is there some properties with real Anovar that are really freaking cool because it gets metabolized differently in the liver and has different binding? Yes. But black market drugs aren't the same as pharmaceutical that gets researched on, number one. Number two, everybody's body is different. And so even if you think you are safeguarding yourself, women have different levels of androgens starting. They have different receptor, as I mentioned, sensitivity. They have different ratios. We don't even understand where all the androgen receptors in the female body are. We don't understand that. you got to ask yourself, that's a risk you want to take because you are entering that when you start to take them. Um, there are different uh, ways in which they interact with other compounds. So if you're taking, like one of the, I would say one of the most popular questions I get is, can I take you know, androgens on hormonal contraceptives? And my answer is always the same. I don't know. If I don't have research on a clean slate, how do I have it on the alternative? What I do have is from East Germany and Russia, and that has its own questions associated with it. And I have antidotal from working with people, people and I also have theoretical from you know building these crazy models, which is what I do. So it depends on the type of contraceptive, it depends on the person, and you go going on and on and on with all the individual variables. So with gear, there are certain, or androgens, there are certain androgens that have been shown in clinical research in certain populations to have potential impact on females. You have to apply that to the individual. So are we talking about somebody using Anavar for four to six weeks? And at what dose, let's say 10 milligrams. Risk is, there's a lot we don't know but is it less risky than say using a SARM mixed with like test probe? Yes, not as, it's not as risky as that. So we can balance and we can begin to weigh that equation as well. Um, but really there just, there's no safe list. There's no, like, if you take this, you're side effect free. Um, and that duration is, Nothing's selective. Um, I know yeah. a popular thing is, is SARMs, but still at the dosage used, uh, there's no selectivity. And, and the devil's kind of in the dose and the duration, if you well, would that. So SARMs, I, I'm a huge negative Nelly about because there's just not enough research on them. Uh, they're bastardized molecules. God knows what they're doing in our bodies. At least with androgens, we have a little bit better of an idea, but these don't even look like, I mean, the lock and key, you're picking that lock with a bobby pin. Like it's, we don't know. And I have to say, I see the worst long-term negative impacts with SARM users as opposed to androgen users. Um, I see crazy cholesterol values. I see crazy hair loss. I see really difficult reproductive and I actually have seen a lot of, and this is purely antidotal. I'm not saying that they cause it. 
I've just, it's from my limited pool of information and people I've worked with, I've seen a lot of autoimmunity. Hmm. So I don't know where that's going. And I know that there's new research coming out all the time and I follow it like a hawk, but I've just a very interesting observation that I have made. So I see a lot of autoimmunity in other cases as well. Um, so don't come at me trolls. Um, but I, I think with SARMs, peptides, there's some cool stuff. I always think about how can I optimize the body in other ways beyond androgens? Well, inflammation. Bioenergenics is the coolest thing. Like let's make our mitochondria function really well. Let's work through nutrient uh, partitioning and like, like, let's actually work on the ways in which the body utilizes fuel. Cause that's why a lot of us actually are really like, when you think about people that say have issues with um, like weight loss, inflex or metabolic inflexibility or weight loss resistance. It's often that there's something that's gone astray in how their body actually utilizes fuel and substrate. So I try to work on that stuff first with people, particularly because it's just going to make them healthier in the long run. And often I find that there is such a massive benefit for muscle building when you actually tap into that stuff. Cause it's not just about androgens either. I mean, estrogen and progesterone are both badass for building muscle. They're huge. So is having proper levels of hormones and everything else. And like thyroid, there's a time and there's a place clinically for the right combinations of thyroid meds. Should you abuse them on prep? Oh, hell no. All those gains are going down the toilet. Like it's, you want to talk about anti-cat, like anti-anabolic slash catabolic thyroid is it, but that's one that we see abused a lot or certain types of stimulants. Well, one way to get on the road to like complete system meltdown is the stimulant train. Cause your nervous system can't handle that. It can barely handle you doing a workout. And now you're putting in like three to 500 milligrams of caffeine, yohimbine, Computerol, uh, like the there, list goes there on. Is, on there on. is uh, talk out there for a clenbuterol use in the off season as a muscle building agent for females. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any? Uh, have you seen this talk or have any opinions around this talk? <laughs> I've heard it. I've seen it. Do I agree with it? No. Is is data to substantiate this? You know, no, no, God, no. <laughs> Um, theoretically, sure, but I mean, clenbuterol is a banned substance. How are we researching this? Are you using information from cattle? Because women aren't the same thing, just so we all know that. Like, <laughs> there's a big difference there. So where are we getting information from? A big part of my journey has been to ask those questions. I'm just looking around. Like I have some books, some of my books are in at home and or I'm, I live between two countries. So some of my books are here. Some of them are in Ontario, but I have an old bookshelf back here. It's loaded. You can't really see on the top shelf, but it's loaded with old medical textbooks because old medical textbooks. So pre 19, like 64 research is being done on androgens clinically. But then because of something called like research ethics, Mary Beecher, uh, we stopped being able to do uh, the same amount of research on things that were perceived to be harmful for the individual. And so because we've labeled hormones as being testosterone as sex hormones, male hormone, it was seen as unethical to give it to female patients. So that's why one of the reasons why there's just not a lot of clinical research on 
women, but then also just on steroids because they got labeled classified as being a controlled substance. And then that just completely kiboshed it. So if people say it's research driven, ask how, where, where's the data, show me, explain it to me, talk to me about it. Um, because it's just, there's, there's just not the research there to support a lot of the stuff. And what is there? Like I said, I, I mean, German, Hungarian, um, Polish, Russian, like I go deep to try to find what I can. Um, and then it's a lot of theoretical models, but that's also where a couple of years ago, I, well, 2016 now, was where I started to draw the parallels between natural states of hyperandrogenism and what can we learn from hyperandrogenism in women or high levels of natural test and apply that to women using exogenous. Like when I came out with that whole theory, I think a lot of people were surprised because it made a lot of sense in many ways to really begin to ask those questions about the, the relationship between inflammation and androgens, insulin resistance and androgen, insulin resistant induced states without androgen use in competitors. So like, what are we inducing through the act of competing inflammation, insulin resistance, hormone dysfunction? And what are we inducing through potential androgens? And it's not the same for everybody. There's lots of variables here, but insulin resistance, inflammation, hormone dysfunction, and now we're weaving them together. So how do we start to unweave them? Well, we often don't want to crush androgens because they're the reason why you're there in the first place. So we have to work on the other two axes, which is inflammation, insulin resistance. And from there, that kind of spirals out into a bunch of other systems. But in its most basic sense, if we manage our inflammation and we manage our insulin resistance, can we have safer high androgens in women? Potentially. Depends still on who. Depends on how they're making their own. Depends on how their relationship is with like androstein down and DHT and all that stuff. But potentially. Is it a hall pass? No. Not at all. Like, no. And that there are certain forms of virilization, facial hair, hair loss that we can manage through um, superficial means, but we still have to work the inside. I mean, if people say like, oh, I'm on uh, finasteride or I'm on minoxidil or whatever for my hair loss. And I'm like, okay, but you realize that's the, like my train, that's the last stop on the train. You had a ton of stops to get there that we've got to deal with first. Like we can still do that. We have to still work on that level, but we have to get all of those other stops dealt with in order to actually manage the problem and make it so when you stop using that product, it doesn't just come back. Within that, so I know we've gone a little over time, so I don't want to dra drag you out here. Um, I'll close this, this up, but I, I just for any, anyone listening and um, there's so much, misinformation out there and dogma or things that you probably come across that they're like maybe some a few hard stops of points that are like this is total bunk this is total bunk um do you have anything like that for the people listening like this absolute myth of busting that you want to do around female ped usage yes. uh, that <laughs> <is>. <laughs> myth busting is like my favorite hobby um <laughs> Like seriously, you guys can see kind of my wall here. Um, but uh, 
Okay, so one of them is that you need you need to use gear to get in shape, or you need to use some type of performance enhancing agent to get in shape. Again, it comes down to who are we talking about? What are they doing? How long are they doing it? There's a ton of different variables here. But if a coach tells you you need to have enhancement to get in shape, call their bluff because that's not the case for everybody. And getting in shape is a lot different than standing on stage at the Olympia level. If you are a gym goer, you want to look good, but really like that's, that's it. Going and gravitating towards really hard compounds or, I mean, any compounds for that matter, or physique performance altering drugs, we really have to ask some harder questions about that. I have seen lots of people, like I've said, over the years come to me and be like, I just can't get in shape. I just can't do it. They could do it. They just had to do it a different way than they were used to. I think that one you need, you need to dig harder and a lot of the other avenues that you yeah. can, and a lot of times those haven't been explored. And exactly. I, I would say uh, the androgens are, are not the best fat loss drugs. If you had to pull. Oh over, Lord, like, no, there hey, they I'm were. Fat, take a fat loss drug. Like, oh yeah. An androgen. Like, no, there's probably other things. Or, to that. I mean, ladies, low estrogen is going to make you fat. Like at the end of the day, it's a bell curve. You got, you got to have the right amount. And like, if it's so funny, because people are like, but why, why do competitors get drier? I'm like, you realize that low estrogen and dryness, your vagina is dry and it causes atrophy. Your mucosal lining in your body is dry. Your scalp is dry. Your skin is dry. So you're now getting wrinkles. I'm like, so that dryness is it really worth it? Because well, things like say clitoral atrophy can get reversed when you come off androgens. Vaginal atrophy does not. She's there for life. So that's something to remember that male coaches probably don't actually all know is that the labia gets stretched and gets thinned and your ability to have orgasms, gone. Your ability to use your pelvic floor properly so you're trying to grow the best glutes and you have no pelvic floor strength anymore. Good job. Not going to happen. Not going to be done safely. Going to cause a lot more issues in the long run. Everything from chronic UTIs, which aren't going to probably be bacterial origin. They're going to actually be from a lack of hormones because estradiol is incredibly protective for UTIs, yeast infections. And yet then the doctors just start pouring on antibiotics, antibiotics, antibiotics when it's hormonal all along. And it's been induced because of prep drugs. Like that's the shit I deal with every day that I'm like, how, how about this stop. you're in prep. It's likely that estrogen and progesterone are on this crash. Mm-hmm. And then we introduce um, CIRMs and AIs as well, just to smash estrogen down lower, just in case it's not already smashed quick myth go yeah well the road to up is long you come off so here i mean anytime we go through dramatic hormonal fluctuations think of it as puberty again emotions are high skin is breaking out you feel fat one day you feel ugly one day you feel horny the next you feel like you're depressed The, the lovely 
thing of puberty is what happens when our hormones are in flux. Now there's things we can do to make that road a lot smoother, but menopause or perimenopause, or especially towards the end of it, and puberty, these crazy times that people talk about, I mean, that those are the hormonal fluctuations. And even the most Zen human being with all their shit together will still feel something when hormones are fluctuating. There's still something. They're just often able to ride it because they've got all their pieces in place. They, they are able to do that. But for the vast majority of people, it's not an easy journey. So you come off these drugs and your estrogen is tanked. So I, if you're going to do it without any help, which often I have to say, you have to go off and see what your body does, depending on where you are, your resilience, all that stuff. The worst thing you can often do is just to start a bunch of supplements or drugs without letting your body have time to just see where it's going. Because the thing is, is that within medicine, it's not like somebody has amenorrhea for three months and then their doctor just puts them on, um, let's say estrogen patch replacement. That doesn't happen. Often it starts with lifestyle therapy, number two. And then after a year, they go, okay, you know, we've tried everything and it's still not coming back. Let's slowly use the right form of estradiol for you, your risk, your age, your family factors, everything, and go slow. Because if you then all of a sudden introduce higher doses than the body's been used to, bad things happen. That's the same with progesterone replacement that a lot of people don't realize because it's growing. I don't know if I'm behind this or what, and I apologize if I am, but like when I said that like micronized bioidentical progesterone is really cool in the right form, in the right way for the right person. And that if you have been progesterone deficient for a very long time, it is a slow journey back. And it takes a lot of pharmaceutical knowledge to actually be able to get somebody there safely because of just the ways in which that type of drug works is it's not the most bioavailable for our body. It's got a very short half-life and that it's the highs and the lows, like I said, that get us into trouble. And so sometimes you have to do some, you know, dosing um, and, and routes of entry that aren't always the mainstream and that's okay. We got to do what works for the individual. So um, in that type of situation, John, time. So coming off, I would come off. I would begin to lay my foundations even before, if possible. If not, that's cool too. Drop it. But with an AI, depending on what it is, either taper down or drop altogether. Again, again, it depends on duration of use, age. If it's a SARM, drop it yesterday. Wait three months before you get labs. I think that's another thing I see that people do wrong is they drop, get labs. And I'm like, we have no baseline establish your baseline because those labs right away, if we think about how long drugs stay in the system, they're going to be in the system for a little bit of time. And then we also have to think about how those drugs have interacted with the system. It's kind of like taking a snow globe and just waiting for that snow to dissipate. We just got to wait a little bit longer for that snow to dissipate in that time. Does that mean you can do nothing? No, we know a lot. Theoretically, we know a lot. We know that if somebody's there, they're going to have micronutrient deficiencies. We know if somebody's there, they're going to have lifestyle issues probably going on. Sleep, right? Estrogen deficiency and sleep are buddy-buddy. So let's do what we can, restoring, then get labs done. If you can't wait three months, if 
two months in, you're like, oh my God, I need to do something. We do them. That's fine. And then at least we have a plan forward. But when for women, when it comes to especially estradiol, because we can have hormonal architectures that have estradiol in the absence of progesterone, often you have to get labs done more than once and you have to do them with FSH and LH. And so normally in fertility world or just like advanced, we're doing it like three to five times um, back like weekly to see like, can I actually get some type of a, a, a an overview of what's happening here? Um, and then from there, it's making decisions about what's going to be the best form of HRT. Often estradiol has to be loaded at least a little bit before we can in- introduce progesterone because progesterone stops your endometrium and we need to build some endometrium okay. when it's been really low. Uh, I think those are some great takeaways. I think for, for females that are transitioning from uh, phase into post-show. I can give you a couple others really quick. Vitex okay. is not not your first place to go. Like again, bounce on my desk screaming, like Vitex is not a end all. We have to think of what that drug does. Number one, we don't know. What we do know is it lowers prolactin. If somebody has functional hypothalamic amenorrhea or any type of pituitary or hypothalamus base, because there's more than just that reproductive dysfunction, or they've just come off the pill, their pituitary is in the gutter. That's maybe not the best drug. Or if somebody's got a ton of cystic ovaries and you're, you know, right now a lot of people are using Clomid because it's a bodybuilding drug to try to induce ovulation. Hyperstimulation of the ovaries is terrible. It's how we induce cysts. So if somebody's already got hyperstimulation, we don't need more of that. So one thing that I recommend all female competitors, all women, this is very rarely do I say generalizing statements, get your pap smears done. Get them done even annually if you don't have a bleed. Let's see where your cervical cells are because if you're not bleeding, we've got to manage cervical and gynecological cancers. Get an ovarian ultrasound done. Labs are only going to tell us one side of that. It's only going to give us so much. Ovarian, particularly getting a transvaginal ultrasound done will allow us to see what's your endometrium doing. Is it thick? Is it thin? If it's thin, it means we've got not enough estrogen. You can bleed and not have estrogen. I mean, that's perimenopausal bleeding patterns. Got nothing to do with progesterone at that point in time. Your estrogen, she's tanked and you might be bleeding every two weeks and think that you have spotting and breakthrough and then you have a menstrual bleed, but it's not the case at all. So that's huge. And that's something that I don't think women are doing enough. Get mammograms done. If you have sore, painful breasts, And even if it's hormonal, that still over time creates architecture within your breast tissue that's going to be more susceptible to hormonal cancers or non-hormonal cancers. So those are the ways we can protect ourselves. It's not always about taking certain drugs or substances. It's about actually getting a better understanding of what's going on on the inside. One of the easiest things that androgen users can do for, for women from like a virilization, take pictures, record your voice. You don't see what's happening on the day to day. Yet a lot of people, it's the end. It's the after that they're just like, oh my God, why didn't anybody tell me that my voice was like getting 
rough. And it's like, well, that wasn't nobody else knew that you were using. So protect yourself. If you start to get scratching, that's not a sore throat. Yeah, for any anyone out there, I, I use uh, in Renee, she uses a voice pitch analyzer. Yeah. And yeah. It, it asks you to, re to read this really strange lines of the story, and then it yeah. will measure in hertz. Yeah. Track that over time for, yeah. you'll have a, a graph of masculization, androgynous, or feminine. Yeah. So you can see if that's that is actually changing. And there's some really cool stuff because of the, I mean, the, the transgender research has given us a lot of really cool data on hormone use. And that's all I'm going to say to, to that. But one thing that has also come from that is voice exercises and vocal exercises. So people that don't know my story, when I was 19, my hormones blew up on me. I was on the pill, had an eating disorder, yada, yada, yada. My voice changed. I wasn't androgen use. This was my adrenal glands decided to have a party um, and shoot up more DHEA than anybody's body should have. So my voice dropped. I wish back then I knew about this stuff because I could have, I could have helped a lot of the damage that had been done if I would have done proper voice training after it occurred. And that could have been enough to at least bring me back up a little bit closer to what my voice sounded like. Some people can do them now and that's cool. Unfortunately with mine, I, I can't, I tried. It's just my vocal cords are shot. I also had some damage from having bronchitis at that time too and laryngitis. So the doctors just think shit storm happened. So I'm a weird case. Hopefully you're not. And even if you use 10 years ago, there is hope. Like there is things you can do. Um, for hair Where growth. someone find out yeah. about the like voice training? Honestly, YouTube. Okay. Yeah, YouTube, there is a ton of really good speech pathologists that have like guided courses, even on YouTube of all things, um, on how to do it. But it's speech pathology or somebody who's linguistic, um, background in linguistics. It's a lot of vocal training to actually try to maintain the flexibility. Because when we think about androgenic voice changes, what a lot of people don't realize is that it's a combination between dehydration that gets induced from androgens in an absence of estrogens and progesterones. It's a hyper kind of binding of the androgens because you don't have the estrogens and progesterones that creates this tautness and tightness and rigidity. And that rigidity, you, you don't get the same vibrations. And that lack of vibration is what drops the voice down. There's a way we can try to maintain some of that dynamic and flexibility to get at least some of that pitch and training back in the vocal cord, if we can keep that environment also of hydration up. And that's often where, uh, I know we're running on time, but it's the combination effect that fuck up women. It's adding clenin on top of that, which is drying you out cellularly. It's adding thyroid in that's raising your temp and also has a virilization and androgen there. I mean, t thyroid, that's could be another show because it does so much for your reproductive hormones as well, beyond just your thyroid. Um, and, and then we also have strenuous training. Well, any of us, if you train really hard the day after you're like, Oh my God, was I screaming? Well now add in growth hormone and you've got a thickening as well. Like you're, it's a shit mix. It's not just all about the androgens. And even if the androgens are going to have a risk, we can mitigate that 
through watching some of these other variables at the same time. Um, hair loss, I also say to people like take, taking pictures. Mm. Like there are just these little ways tracking for symptoms. Like if you're going to do your prep pictures, say every week, check in with your coach. If your coach hasn't already asked you, but hopefully they have, you make a point of looking at, okay, what's my hair growth like? Face, legs, everywhere. What's my voice? What's my hair? Like, don't become hyper vigilant on it because that doesn't serve anybody, but just put it in. So at least weekly, you're checking in on these things. It makes a difference. It makes a big difference. Those are, those are excellent points and stuff that a lot of people aren't tracking at all. Just it, it's, it's some of those stuff. It's such a slow change over time. You don't realize it's happening till it's there. Mm -hmm. And the people don't even realize like, Hey, 10 years ago, you sounded, you look completely different, you know, and a lot of yeah. stuff, like you said, can't get back. So I think those are. Well, John, and you, you asked me like, what about people who don't care about their hormones now? This is the stuff that's going to happen to you when you go through perimenopause and your hormones are going on that roller coaster ride. So if you want to maintain your hair, get your estrogen and your progesterone and check now and keep it there. Because when you start that withdrawal process, you're going to have levels that are where they need to be. Even if you decide to go down that HRT route, it's going to be so much better if you're where you need to be, at least for the vast majority of the year, let's say. But it's, it's when you've just got so much going on and so many different factors. I mean, you're lining yourself up for failure, not success. That's, uh, that's so helpful. And I appreciate all this information. So I, I don't want to take more of your time because I think we now have to just do another podcast. <laughs> uh, diving more into some more of those topics. Love to have you back on. Absolutely. This is, uh, it's, as you guys can tell, it's my, it's my passion and it's something I thought secretly, I thought it was going to get better and it didn't, <laughs> it's gotten worse. <laughs> so it's, uh, it takes an army of us to actually begin to shift the paradigm. That's what I want to put that information out and just educate more people on females in general and get them to a healthier spot because there is a lack of misinformation out there or there's just there's great information out there and it's just not being heard and so that's what i hope to to bring about through j3u so um if someone wants to reach out for you i don't know if you're doing individual consults or coaching more where can they find you at sometimes i do sometimes I don't kind of just depends on when they reach out um you know, they find me on my website yeah, get on the waiting list, exactly. Um, it's uh, victoriafelker.com and my social media, both my Instagram and my Facebook are that as well. And on Instagram, if you message me, it might be a while. I'm After a year and a half of being off, I've like forgotten how to use the platform. So email is usually the best. And if you're interested in consulting with me, just fill out the, there's an application page like on my website. So that is the easiest way to actually get a hold of me. Perfect. I'll, I'll leave that in the show notes as well. Mm -hmm. And so they can look you up and get more great information. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for coming on again. Thank you for having me. Pleasure.
uh, J3U podcast. And I will, we will talk to you next time.